G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. Today I had an amazing conversation with the lovely Cara Rice of Brain Connects Therapy. Uh, Cara came on to have a chat to me about sensory processing, to teach me all about her work with regards to sensory processing blew my mind a little bit with uh, primitive reflex integration and how that impacts sensory processing disorders and we went on to have a conversation about how the flow-on effect of these sensory processing issues can have on adults as well. Oh gosh. (laughs) So well, you know, I don't know if I realized it found me until five years ago, but I was, I graduated with degree in kinesiology. So I was working in personal training and it was fine and it was fun and I love fitness and exercise, but it wasn't exactly where I saw myself and I really wanted more. So back then, you know, we just had computers, no social media, like 15 years ago. And I would just, I just researched. I actually, I didn't know any OTs. I don't even know if I knew a PT and I found it somehow. (laughs) And I liked that it was holistic. I liked that I kind of get bored really fast. So I like that you could change, um, you know, be in pediatrics or you could be in hands or you could be at the hospital and have like a whole new job. And um, yeah, and that was it. And so I applied to OT school, got in and the rest, and that was it. And I just kept working. And it wasn't until my son started having his own issues that I realized maybe that was why I chose the career. Like it, it spoke to you subconsciously yeah yeah it did it did because PT just looked like uh, it looks interesting but kind of boring so <laughs> I thought OT had so much more potential I hear that a lot from OTs a lot of OTs did look at PT but then went uh, it's kind of yeah kind of bland <laughs> I actually needed, yeah I needed like one more course too to get into PT school so I was like oh I don't want to do that so I'm just gonna go right for OT and never looked back Nope. It's been great. <laughs> so where did, where did you start? Like what was your area of interest? Like when you first graduated, where did you work? Yeah, I worked in acute care, in the hospital and inpatient. And then I, I swear I've gone every, I've done every single thing I think there is. So I went to outpatient. Then I went to community rehab with strokes and TBIs. So I really like focused on neuro a yeah. lot at the beginning. And then I wanted to get back into fitness and I was like debating on doing personal training again. And I thought that was, I shouldn't do that. So (laughs) I got a job at um, like a a spine rehab place where then I was doing a little bit kind of more hand there because I was doing like upper body extremities and cervical spine injury stuff. Um, And then I had kids and that changed everything. So then I went into home health because it was really a lot easier flexible wise. And I taught a little bit um, for occupational therapy assistance. And then I went into pediatrics. So you really have been sort of all over the map. Everywhere. Yeah. I think I covered, oh, I didn't have done FCEs and I've done like work rehab stuff too. So I think I have covered everything. (laughs) Wow. All right. Busy, busy career. Well, no mental health. That's the one thing. You've got me on that, right? That's right. I got that covered. (laughs) We're good. Between us, we've 
pretty much got the whole profession covered, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, obviously, pedi- pediatrics, why pediatrics? Is it something that you just sort of grew to love or it was something you always aimed to go into? No, no, not at all. Um, my son, he, so I have two kids. Mm-hmm. My son was my second and he um, was born with low tone. And it was funny because I had just taught occupational therapy assistants, like right prior, like right when the semester ended, I had him. And right before that, I was teaching them about tone. And I showed this video of a doctor holding a little baby and it was just floppy. They called it floppy baby. And I was holding him at two weeks old and I thought, oh my God, like he looks exactly like that video. And I didn't really, I mean, I had not been in pediatrics ever. Like that was the one area I'd never done anything in. Mm. So I didn't know that much, but, um, so anyway, so I got him therapy probably at six months old, he started doing therapy, but it was around our like early intervention here is from birth to three, at least in Arizona. So he got his therapy till three. I just said, okay, you guys are the experts. I've never been in peds, but he just didn't make that many gains. And I thought there's gotta be more. There's like, there's something that our profession is not tapping into to really make changes. And that's when I started, I stopped my work and just did all the research there was and continuing courses and mentorships and all these things. And then I, that's when I got into it. Wow. And he's obviously toned up now. Oh yeah. His tone's <laughs> really good. He's really strong. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So you've been in peds ever since? So yeah. So then that's been my focus. Cause I'm still, I mean, he's not, he definitely has still delays. So that's like everything I learn, I feel like parents need to learn. So I kind of come at it from the perspective of parent, but also OT. But I think there's so much parents can do on their own at home and just so much more education they need to help their kids, especially um, with autism in, in particular, even sensory processing and ADHD. Like parents are kind of taught that they're not the experts, like someone else needs to do it. Mm. Like Someone else needs to teach them to tie their shoes or to brush their teeth or when if you had a typical child you'd be the one teaching them to do those things so why are we taking so much control away from the parents so that's where my like big pushes or mission is I guess yeah I see that I mean that's something that there was a big push a few years a few probably 15 20 years ago yeah in mental health was to try and you know put some of this power back with uh like the the individual and their family and their support networks and that kind of thing because it yeah was becoming very similar in that there was an issue they would go to not even just OTs but mental health professionals to fix it in air quotes because mm-hmm. obviously I just realized people can't see that um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh and it's it's not nearly as effective and there's no there's a lot less follow through there's a lot less buy-in um and and people make less progress because of that so yeah that's something that i think doesn't matter what uh practice area that you're in that's something that's super important is to you know we're there to empower people to help themselves and i think a lot of times sometimes well not a lot of times but sometimes the not necessarily the therapist but sometimes the the systemic issues that don't or aren't set up that way I guess yeah that is a big problem yeah yeah I really hope that 
paradigm will shift. And I think OTs have a big, have a lot of power in that because we have so much knowledge on lifestyle and habits and like how to change things and just to look at the whole picture rather than just fixing somebody, but looking at everything. Um, hope, yeah, I hope our career, I think OGs just have so much potential here, like in that area. I've always said that in a lot of instances, OT is just a common sense profession. So yeah. a lot of a lot of the stuff we do with people is just common sense. It's just we generally work with people that either aren't in the space or uh, can't quite put two and two together. Because a lot of the stuff we act like the actual stuff we do with people, it's not rocket science. No, it's just. But the, sometimes when you look from the outside in, you have a different perspective, you know. Oh yeah, and I can like I can completely understand why people who have no knowledge of the profession look at us and go, well, "What are you doing?" Like, why are you doing this weird stuff? Like, why are you making them cook meals in the hospital and all this and right. that? And like, like, well, yes, there's a lot of science backing and that's what we train to know. But it, for the most part, it's quite a common sense kind of profession. Yes, there are. Yeah. There are, not negating, there are some very complex assessments and interventions and that kind of thing. But for 90% of it, it's pretty common sense. And it should be because that's... Most people, well, there are a lot of people that can work out what they need on their own. Mm-hmm. We just yeah. we just happen to work with the people that can't quite get there and support them to 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 work it out for themselves. <laughs> yeah. So you talked about so you're you are in private practice now. I do. I actually, it's all online. It's all virtual. Okay. And that's the Brain Connects Therapy. Yes, Brain Connects Therapy. I like it. Thanks. I, like it. <laughs> I don't know why. Whenever that connects is spelled with an X, I like it. Well, yeah. Well, you know why it is? Why? Because the brain, you know, the right side uh, controls the left. Oh, that left explains the logo, the logo as well. Yeah. I get it now. I'm just cool, a, bit, right? <laughs> I'm a bit slow at 5.30 in the morning. Um, that's awesome. No, I like that. So you would do a lot, I'm assuming, with uh, sensory processing. We do. Okay. I take I come at it from a little different perspective okay. than maybe um, than you would when you're individualized at a treatment center, when they have swings and climbing, all these things. Well, I also look at it from the foundational aspect of using primitive reflexes and the sensory system together. And you can do those things at home. Okay. And so the whole reason, like we were talking that it's not just this, like, we're not just fixing the child. Like there's the parent has to be involved too. There has to be a lot more than just this one time a week of somebody else doing something to somebody, Mm -hmm. right? Like there has to be more. So in anything, Like if you want to lose weight or you want to run a marathon, you can't just do something one day a week or you want to learn the piano. You can't practice one day a week and that's it. You have to do it multiple times to create change. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think a big thing we're missing is um, kids just aren't getting this this proper stimulation every single day or five days a week or, you know, minimum three times a week. Like no insurance pays for that. So they go once a week and maybe they'll get changes over time. But I'd rather, at least for my son, I'd rather get it as fast as possible. So that's yeah. when I stumbled upon primitive reflexes, really. Um, and how once I started working with them, it did change his sensory system. 
system. So he was hyper, super hypersensitive to auditory noises and it went away. And then okay. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. Um, so I went to a lot of the, and a lot of this is also me being a parent and going to therapy sessions. So I would still take him to therapy mm. and seeing that, you know, I remember some of the first people he would, they would practice balance or like cross body stuff, but he never even had that before. So just to practice it over and over and over, I mean, maybe the body would eventually get it, but it would take a long time. Yeah. But it, what we were missing, I knew there was just something missing. There was like that foundation that was missing, which is what happens with every child. They all have to go through primitive reflexes. They all go through like sensory integration during that phase of infancy before they can get to balance and coordination and better behavior and attention and focus. So that's when I like did the re a lot of research on that area of practice, I guess, to um, help. So just give me a brief, uh, I guess, explanation about the primitive reflexes. So what, what are they? How do they work? That kind of thing. Yeah, they're automatic movements that every child does. So like if you um, stroke a baby's cheek, you, they'll turn to feed, like that's rooting reflex. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're just movements that the brainstem basically, which is the survival part of your brain, kind of the like reptilian brain, they call it does. Cause it just is like an automatic thing. And once they do it over and over and over and over again, they become integrated, these reflexes. And then the child has the ability to, they move into postural reflexes, which is like being upright and having control over your movements. So if you still have like all the primitive reflexes are movements that are kind of combined. So if I turn my head to the right, my arms might turn a certain way. Or if I look up or down, my, my arms and legs will move with it. Um, so if you're an older child that hasn't integrated, when they do something subtle, like turn their head, let's say a certain direction, they're going to have these subtle movements happening in their body and they don't have full control, mm -hmm. like full control over their body. So they're always going to be a little bit off. And so they can learn those splinter skills um, like attention and focus and balance, but they're all not going to, in learning and academics and stuff, but it's just not going to be as smooth and coordinated as it would if the primitive reflexes were completely integrated. Gotcha. Does that make sense? It does. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so how do you use them in a therapy, like with, sensory process and like how does that all work together in what you actually do with people right so i teach i train parents on how to do the exercises with their kids so basically you go back and you do what the babies did um <laughs> birth to 12 months like okay. you do these exercises over and over and over so this is where it comes where, why i did a virtual program because they do have to do it five days a week to see results. Now you're not going to do it forever, you know, maybe max six months, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, no therapy really, you can't just do it one time a week and think that that's going to help because it really needs lots of repetition. Um, and then we start to include things like, um, vestibular stimulation, proprioception, visual, um, smells, what else? Hearing <laughs> auditory. So we add in the sensory pieces because the sensory system is working at the same time and integrating while during that infancy period, okay. right? The baby's turning to noises and um, trying to track things with their hands when they're learning, um, when they're moving through the ATNR 
reflex, for example, they're tracking with their eyes and they might be looking at different objects. So that all kind of combines together. And that's what I train parents on how to do those exercises. So what sort of things, so, uh, so a kid that isn't integrated uh, and obviously the, the sensory system isn't developed because of that, I'm assuming. What sort mm -hmm. of, uh, what would you actually notice? What would you see about the kid yeah. on the outside? Right. So this is, um, there's so many different um, symptoms, but you're going to have poor attention, fidgety, really can't sit still. And each um, reflex kind of has different symptoms with it. And, so, and a lot of them do overlap, but um, hypersensitivity, any hypersensitivity, noise, sound, touch, those are all very related to the Moreau reflex. Um, don't like clothing, you know, like really are really tactile and defensive, have problems learning, have problems reading, really like any developmental milestone type of thing that's happening. Or if they have poor balance, poor coordination, all of these things have to they have to have that like base brainstem functioning correctly for the cerebellum to have those coordinated movements functioning correctly too. Okay. And how, what sort of age, what sort of age are you like intervening? So the, the guy, the kids that you work with sort of, how old are they? Yeah. I mean, I work anywhere, usually three to 18, I would say are the different ages, but you can even do these as adults, but it's not unless you have more than two reflexes unintegrated where you really see functional issues you know, like you're, you, some adults do have one or two that are maybe not fully integrated, sure, but it's not. Sure I've got a couple. Yeah, I think I do too. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think it fully makes, you know, like, like, so some kids will have major issues. Like my son, he was delayed, like, because he had such low tone. So he was very delayed in his milestones. Whereas some kids might have met all of their milestones, but maybe they crawled funky and then their STNR wasn't integrated. And then that just made it so they couldn't read very well. Or, you know, like it's, so there's a, very, a big range of severe symptoms to very mild symptoms. Okay. So when I hear like therapists talk about say sensory processing disorder, how, what is that? How does that fit with all of this? Or does that, with is everything. that separate? No, it totally fits in. So sensory processing disorder is when the child is sensitive, right? Sensitive to either hyper or hypo. You can have kids that don't really feel um, pain um, or kids that are hypersensitive to noise. Kids are hypersensitive to touch um, or they can be, like I said, the opposite, hyposensitive. A lot of vestibular where either you spin them and they just don't get dizzy at all or they get motion sickness. So it could be, you know, either one, either like motion scale. sickness to drive in the car. Um, but all of those are totally related to the Moreau reflex okay. being integrated. So that one's like a huge one in regards to sensory processing. So when we can fix that, then a lot of those sensory issues go away on their own because then they can integrate naturally because kids, I mean, naturally an infant should, their senses should just naturally integrate, right? Like as they age yep. and grow. But what we're seeing is that so many kids are just not 
developing properly, whether it's like they didn't get enough movement because they're not on their belly enough and they're in these containers all the time, or they had some type of trauma or the toxins in our environment, like all these things can affect the way our brain is developing as well as the food we eat because the gut and the brain access works together. So anyway, so then they're a little bit delayed and then the senses don't integrate fully. And then we have sensory processing disorder. Wow. So all of that stuff, all of that stuff is linked back to like that one main primitive reflex. Yes, 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 yes. Wow. It's interesting, huh? Yeah, that's insane. And I didn't learn about this in school at all. I don't think they taught it 15 years ago. No, well, (laughs) yeah, I was, that was probably about the same time I was at uni and I don't remember doing much at all around sensory I remember I remember doing like the reflexes and stuff in like lifespan development but uh I don't okay. think there was a whole lot of sensory stuff back then I think that's yeah. I think that's probably more new which is good but well not good that it wasn't back then but good that we've actually found out this stuff now because that sounds like right. it's kind of important <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, just in the like 90s where they really started research on the right and left brains being totally separate, Mm. like beings, you know, like they knew they were separate, but just the majority of research has been since the 90s. So it's really new, I would say, like that they, people believe like the right and left brain have different um, functions and just said that how much the brain controls and how much the gut, you know, just all this new science that we're coming up with is amazing. So, um, so uh, say a hypothetical kid that is having their sensory issues, and it's because this morrow reflex wasn't integrated when they were much younger. What's like uh-huh. what? Would, what do you actually get them? Like, what would be an example of something you get them to do to help? I guess integrate that reflex. Oh yeah, so we do them starfish. It's a pretty simple exercise. Like they put their right arm over their left, their right leg over their left, and they tuck in like a little ball. And then they open up, arms and legs open, the head flips back. So that's, um, just think when a baby, I have some pictures on my website, but when a baby like throws their arms open and their head back, yep. that's the morale. They're like scared all of a sudden. Yep. Uh, it turns into the startle reflex, which we have as adults where we will startle, but we won't like, like open up like a yeah, baby yeah. does. Um, so yeah, they basically mimic what they would have done as an infant. But what makes it even like integrate the faster way is while we do all these like, reflexes, we also, I might have them spinning, you know, kind of like a, similar to like the astronaut protocol where you're spinning different directions. Have you seen that before? It's like a vestibular. I think so. It's like a big um, centrifuge thing. Yeah. Yeah. So then we're stimulating the vestibular system too, because any movement of the head is stimulating the vestibular system. So why not? Since the infant um, experiences all those things together, my program and like how I work with kids is to stimulate all the things together so that they get a complete, you know, complete formation of the brain and everything. Okay. And so they like you just show them these exercises and they would do it, you know, every day, five times a week, however regularly they can. And that helps integrate that primitive reflex, which then I guess would have that daisy chain effect of, developing everything thereafter yeah so it has like a chain effect so as soon as um you can get the reflexes the brainstem strong the sensory system then you can start working the balance and the higher level things like attention and function will start or focus will just start to come 
because they're able to attend and focus. So another example is um, STNR, which is symmetrical tonic neck reflex. Mm -hmm. You'll see kids that kind of like slump in their chair, even older kids, and they have trouble um, looking up at the board and then looking down, like let's say copying from the board. Um, That's just part of the reflex because their body will automatically make them slump, even though they're not, it's unconscious, you know, like it's happening at this lower level. Yeah. So they're having trouble copying though, even though they look like a totally functioning fine child, you know, like they're just having a little bit, a little bit of issues. And that's where reflexes can make big differences too. So what sort of thing would you do for, for the STNR? That one you do the cat. So that's like on all fours and you're just moving your head up and down slowly with control, but keeping your spine neutral. Okay. Like all when you're doing when the children have primitive reflexes, like I said, the head is connected to some of the movements. Yeah, the arms. But once we're like you and I should, and most people should be able to control their head without anything else moving. I don't know, and that means you know, I got a been. pretty big head. It's hard to control. <laughs> well, we can check that later. Yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking, like maybe this is something I've got. I'm gonna start diagnosing myself soon. <laughs> So it sounds like a lot of the sensory issues, if not all of them, you can sort of track back to some of these primitive reflexes. From the research I've done, yes. And I'm not saying that the typical sensory treatment of, you know, swings and um, climbing is not important because it is. But I think you still, without the foundation, you're just going to be beating a dead horse, like continuing to try and try and try and try and try until maybe in a few years they get there versus priming their nervous system down here, getting it really solid and then working on those extra skills. So uh, even my pay or clients and stuff, I still recommend they go to OT mm. like other OTs once a week, you know, continue with that, but they're going to see better gains there if they really just get that foundation intact. So with the the more traditional sensory stuff, like you said, like with the swings, and most people I think listening will be able to picture it because they're the they're usually the rooms that you see on OT school brochures and all sorts of stuff because yeah, they're yeah. bright colours <laughs> and lots of you know things to climb on and swing on and play on. They're all they look fun. Um, what's the I guess the the underlying theory with regards to that stuff? Because I always wondered whether Say if uh, a kid, and I'm probably relating this more to myself, if they have a either a an oversensitivity or an undersensitivity to anything in particular, um, it can be, I guess, fixed or slash adjusted via exposure, or is that not how that works, or what's the? Yeah, uh, um, that's. An interesting question. <laughs> yeah, I have always felt. So you, uh, yeah, okay. So I have always felt exactly what you said. It's exposure. They're trying to expose the nervous system to these sensations mm. over and over till the nervous system all of a sudden feels like it understands it better. And I kind of, since I've been in so many different areas, I kind of feel like it's similar to when I would have hand therapy patients who had like peripheral nerve injuries, have you ever worked in hands? 
I have not. So they'd have peripheral nerve injury where maybe they couldn't feel very well. So you would like rub different sensations on until eventually the nerves felt. But that's not a central nervous system thing. It's a peripheral nervous system thing. Yep. Whereas we're trying to affect the central nervous system. We're trying to affect the brain that's not connecting correctly. And I don't know how well just doing those things would actually just change the brain. Like how spinning over and over is going to make it happen. Or like I said, someone like practicing balance with a child who never had that foundation occur, like how would their brain just all of a sudden be able to know? I'm not sure. Cause I have read, I mean, the research I've looked at for sensory integration techniques from the, um, the, um, that big center in Colorado, even there research shows the kids have to have a minimum three to five times a week to really see benefit. Mm. But kids aren't doing that. They're doing one time a week, right? In a lot of, yeah. And a lot of, I think, I guess, clinic based things. Um, some of the sensory stuff that I've seen recently, um, talking with a friend of mine, Danielle, who's uh, mornings with an OT mom on Instagram. She, uh-huh. she works in schools and does a lot of that stuff in school. So kids do get it. Okay. Oh, so they get like more really regularly, yeah. like every day or whenever, or well, five days when they're at school. Um, yeah. So I think that instance might be better because it's actually in the school. It's not parents just yeah. taking their kids to a clinic, sort of. Yeah, like you said, once a week or even less, depending on the clinic and that kind of thing. But well, yeah. even there's so much studies on movements of doing similar movements of um, reflexes or balance with typical kids just 15 minutes a day at school where it was a school-based research project Mm -hmm. and these kids test scores, their learning, everything flew up so fast with just three months. I think it was 15 minutes a day of, so I think it's more like frequency that really needs to increase. Yeah. Cause I think a lot of the stuff I've seen, she's been posting recently, just as an example, um, has been more around, I guess she kind of makes what looks to me anyway, like little obstacle courses. So it's about yeah. movement um, and it, mod- it will incorporate balance and it'll incorporate, you know, spatial awareness when they're trying to work out whether they go over or under or through or that kind of thing. So it integrates a lot of those things, but into it kind of, I guess to me anyway, oh. it looks more like a, a game or a sport. So yeah. trying to make it a bit more fun. And that's, yeah, I totally think obstacle courses are amazing. If you have them set up the correct way and those sensory paths and all that stuff in schools or that you can do every day with your child will make a difference over time. The reflex, the stuff that reflexes changes, it just makes it happen faster because you can lay that foundation. And if the child is stuck, like they're not seeing the changes, their body might be able to. Some kids' bodies might be able to understand the balance and coordination pretty fast, whereas some can't, and they just need more foundational work first. Is it possible to for, for a kid to end up with some kind of sensory processing issue that isn't related to uh, like these primitive reflexes? Is that a thing? I don't know. There has not. I've been looking on PubMed a lot for... Um, Research on sensory processing, there's nothing there. Okay. There's anything. I can't find much at all. I think it's pretty, you know, I don't even know if it was a diagnosis within the last 10 years, you know, in the DSM or anything. 
Yeah, so it I seems don't very new. Sure. Say. Yeah, seems very newish. Anyway, I think I mean it's it's beyond just reflexes though. Mm. Like it's stimulation from the entire world, the environment. I mean, now we have constant stimulation everywhere, right? We have EMFs, we have screen time, we have all this stuff happening. I mean, I've seen kids that have completely changed behaviorally attention wise, just by taking away their iPad time, you know, like, so there's multifactorial. It's not just this one little piece. So I want, yeah, I wonder on that, whether, I mean, I think I already know the answer, but we live, like you said, in a world now where there's almost too much stimulation, even for me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And if we're, I guess, looking at the sensory stuff as a, you know, I guess an exposure type thing, if they're being exposed to massive amounts of stimulation of some sort, whether it's auditory, visual, whatever it is, thinking about things like screen time, uh, are we... Are you seeing or are we expecting to see sort of a generation of kids that are, I don't know, I guess dull, like numbed to a lot of that sort of stuff? Totally. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, They're bored. They can't even attend in school because they're just used to constant, being constantly stimulated. And that actually goes back to, do you know Annette Benier, B-A-N-I-E-L? I've heard the name, but it's I don't like know. Movements. Um, she had this amazing just re- or talk about kids and how our kids with sensory or autism or any issues are already too stimulated by just the world. Mm. So why are we throwing them into a gym and swinging them and climbing, you know, like doing like colors everywhere and adding all this extra stimulation? They actually need to step back and be in a more simplified environment and just work on basic movements and motions. And that's kind of where I, I lie with my opinions too. <laughs> so for say, cause I've seen, I've seen kids that are exactly like that recently. Um, they're, bored with like they can't sit and just have a conversation they can't sit and even play a board game something that's like slow and like low input um what do you how do you how do you change that do you just like put them in isolation (laughs) like lock them in a (laughs) lock them in a cage somewhere for a while until they adjust how does that yeah what can you do for that obviously obviously i can see how for someone who is like I guess hypersensitive. You can gradually grade up this their input, but what do you do for for kids that are used to getting too much? Yeah. Okay. So this is not going to be like a popular or an easy solution, but kids are not making these choices on their own. It's the parents, right? The parents are the one that buying the iPad. The parents the one that can control how often they're on it. The parents are the one that rush them to 500 activities a week. There really needs to be a shift in parent education with OTs, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because right now it's really like you drop the kid off, they go to therapy, you go outside and scroll to your, you know, your phone or go grocery shopping or something, come back and, oh, okay, you fixed my child. Or, you know, that doesn't happen. You know, kids, 
there's so much more going on than just that little hour. Parents need to really be involved. And that's, yeah, so that's something I'm really like focused on figuring out is how can we educate beyond like that it's all this lifestyle factors it's not just their brain wasn't developed very well because that can be fixed Mm. like you need to also fix the inputs they're getting every single day so get educating the parents on you know and they're it's probably themselves too they're probably on their phones too much and then their kid sees that and you know or they're in that lifestyle where both parents are working and it's just non-stop they don't even sit down to eat dinner together and it just kind of snowballs from there so how do you yeah I don't know if you can fix it from the kid level I think it has to be from the parents but if you say say you do do that though how like what are what are you aiming to get the parents to do okay so the basics here's the basics number one I would have them eating healthy food whole foods organic foods okay because your gut affects your brain brain affects the gut both ways um, I'd have them decrease screen time, maybe, you know, maybe one an hour a day and that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no TVs, no phones in their room at night. So they need to get really good sleep. And the way to get really good sleep is by being active during the day and by getting sunshine during the day. So we're in a, like a society where people don't even go outside anymore. Um, so kids need to be outside. They need to be getting sun. They need to be playing and, that will help produce more melatonin anyway, so they could sleep better. Yep. And the good food will help them sleep better. Um, and decreasing activities. I mean, they can't be, oh, it kills me that like ABA is the first thing that parents are told to do, which is 40, like 20 to 40 hours are not with their parents, which is insane. Like the kids should be with their parents more and learning how to play and just being with other kids and outside. I just, it just, I don't know. Technology has really <laughs> screwed everything up. <laughs> created it's a very different world now yeah yeah and really fast it just happened in the last you know 20 years probably Mm. yeah i don't know i probably i just started facebook what maybe 11 years ago so maybe it's only been 10 or 11 where things have like really ramped up and really ramped up yeah had myspace before that but that was that wasn't (laughs) i didn't have that one (laughs) i'm uh i'm a kid of this generation so I I kind of grew up with all this stuff, but I I remember a time before like we even had internet at home. I'm probably the last generation that actually remembers not having the internet. Right, right. Which is <laughs> kids nowadays just can't even fathom. I think they just think it comes out of well. Sometimes it does come out of thin air, but yeah, it's, it's just and if it takes one, more than one second to like yeah. load, all of a sudden they're freaking out. I was actually having that conversation with my wife the other day because I remember like streaming a movie like even three or four years ago, like you used to download them and it would take an hour or so to download a movie and then you can watch it. And now if the TV even like pauses when you're starting a show, you're like, oh, come on, what is this? I'm like, yeah, and then you go to your phone to like look at something else because you're bored. Yeah. Oh my God. It's ridiculous. Um, so like the, I guess what I was looking at is the exposure to stimuli works the other direction as well. So by limiting exposure can, can, so like limiting, limiting exposure to certain stimuli can also bring like adjust, uh, I guess the, the body's expectations of what it needs slash wants. 
Right. Because actually, I mean, there's been more research that shows um, just constant stimulation, like um, on a phone where you can press something and you get something back or on a video game, you press a button and something happens. You get input that builds um, the left brain, which is an addictive side, the addictive side of our brain. So it increases the strength of that hemisphere and decreases the strength of the right hemisphere, which is more creative and does other things. And um, so that's like, it, it literally is changing the way the brain functions. So it wants more. Mm -hmm. So that, so we do that by, um, we help with that by balancing the brain. So I follow a lot of Dr. Malillo's, Dr. Robert Malillo's research on brain balance techniques. Mm -hmm. And so when we do sensory stimulation, we'll look at which hemisphere is weaker and we'll stimulate that side just a little bit more. So we still stimulate both sides of the brain, but we'll input that side a little bit more by using that crossbody technique. So yep. if it's hearing, I'll use the opposite ear and input that side more than um, the other side, although I'll do both. But that in turn will help to balance the brain and will decrease some aggression, decrease different behaviors too that happen with that left brain. And with something like, say, we're looking at decreasing this kid's uh, screen time, for example, does it work the same as if you were sort of increasing something? Like, do you grade it? So they're like, say, for example, they're doing like five hours a day screen time do you you know oh let's go to four hours next week three hours a week after blah 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 blah, blah or do you just cut it and do something else oh gosh I guess that would be the parents decision I would say <laughs> cut it <laughs> but I know parents will be I mean I've seen parents in different groups who do that and yeah. the kids will out yeah <laughs> and they might freak out for like three days where it's really bad, but then all of a sudden the kid starts to talk more. The child starts to pretend play more. They start to look you in the eye more because they actually have to interact with a human being because human beings are boring, right? Like we don't, we're not as exciting as this computer that's constantly giving them input, 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 input. Yeah, yeah. And um, especially for like autistic kids too, where they're just, I mean, humans just aren't as exciting. That's something I learned when, because um, I'm not very excited, I'm kind of introverted and quiet. And then <laughs> when I went to a, ther a great therapist when he was three, when my son was three, she told me how I had to like have expression on my face when I talked to him and like excited. And that actually made him want to look at me and like want to interact with me because I was more exciting. And he wasn't doing screen time at the time or anything, but just in general, like sometimes if the child has decreased, you know, as little hypo tonic and hypo stimulated, they need more yeah. in that way, but more genuine, you know, like authentic relationship wise stimulation, not computer wise. <laughs> and then the kids that are hyper need that less. So you was like saying before, like with regards to the left and right side of the brain. So you would replace something like that um, with something that stimulated, I guess, the more creative side. Is that right? Oh yeah. Well, plus I would also, I mean, if, if it was like a magic wand, I would just have the kid play outside more. Like all the, you know what I mean? Like just Does make need, them. Do you, need, do you need a magic wand to do that? Can't you just. Get ask them? a parent to do that? Yeah, I think you do. If you want your child to develop well, take them outside more. Yeah. I mean, cause that's boring, right? Like it's kind of boring, Be but boring you're getting parent. awesome stimulation, hiking, you get everything. You get an instability, you're working balance, proprioception, you're hearing birds and you're seeing things. Um, 
you're getting everything just being outside, just, you know, like living, <laughs> like living a real life, but just kids aren't there anymore. Which is interesting because I've heard, um, like Laura Park Figueroa is one of one person I'm thinking of. There's a lot of, I'd say a lot, but there's quite a few OT practices that I've heard of in the last sort of six months that do all of their sessions outside in nature or yeah. in the woods or in the parks or yeah, then you don't need like a headphone that's giving you bird sounds like you actually are hearing it in real life and your brain is just taking in the information like it should naturally occur you know I think we stimulate or simulate too many things sometimes in the OT world which you have to I get it mm. but you know like working with adults like doing um, cooking in their kitchen is a million times better than doing cooking in this random kitchen in the hospital. Right. Cause then they have yes. everything where it's supposed to be. And, I've had that yeah, argument so many times. Yeah. Same with kids. Cause their natural environment should, or typically should be to play outside and just to wander around and find rocks and dig dirt and do silly things, you know, get dirty. Yeah. <laughs> do you think, because I think another thing, aside from technology, that's potentially had an impact on, I guess, our outside time and a whole range of different things is population density. So people living in cities and apartments and that kind of thing where, you know, if you, yeah. I guess if you live in a big city, quite often it might be quite an effort to even find like a park or something nearby. Do you, yeah. do you see that as a potential, I guess, like a, almost like a red flag? Like, would you, do you think you see more kids from those kind of areas than you would, say, kids that live in a small town that are outside all the time anyway? Yeah, I think so. But I don't know, you know. That a- anecdotally. Have a lot of, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that could have a lot of factors too. That there's just a lot more people in that town. So maybe they have more kids with a diagnosis, but yeah, I mean, I think kids, when we lived in a, we lived in a bigger city and we had to go to parks to get that outdoor experience. Whereas now we moved to a forest area specifically for my kids to be outside more. Now we can just walk down the street and we're in the middle of nowhere, you know? And yeah, I think those parents really do have to, make a concerted effort, not only for the kids, but for themselves. Honestly, they need to be outside in the sun. I mean, kids, I mean, autistic kids almost all have a low vitamin D level, which you get from the sun, right? And almost actually, they say a lot of Americans have really low vitamin D levels, which just is a super, super important vitamin for just body function and immune system function. And if you're not outside ever, can't really get it you can supplement but it doesn't work as well yep yeah do you feel so a lot of these issues uh nowadays are i guess picked up probably through school or when kids are you know when we're expecting kids to sit still and concentrate and learn and all this sort of stuff is when a lot of these issues show themselves but do you think that the I guess thinking more again probably more about myself that there's some adults that have probably I guess slipped through the cracks a few years ago 
and are, <laughs> are dealing with these sensory issues themselves. Yes, yes. But also I think because there has been so much more extra input mm. put on us, you know, that it's just exemplifying issues that maybe weren't really there before or we never knew about because there's so much extra. But yeah, there's a lot of, and just like I said, the brain, you know, neuroplasticity, the brain can change at any time. So the more we input ourselves, even adults with constant computer stimulation, constant just stimulation where we can get instant feedback, that strengthens that left side of the brain, which is gonna change, which causes a little bit more ADHD issues um, attention problems, which a lot of people have, you know, <laughs> they can't attend to things anymore. They can't remember things because they just have so much going on. So I think it's a product of both society and maybe just, yeah, more knowledge about it, a little bit more knowledge about it too. I, I'm fairly sure you just like described me. <laughs> okay. We're going to give you some exercises after this. I'm going <laughs> to do my starfish and stuff i'll lay down on the ground here on the carpet yeah because i think thinking about because i think in adult uh, and when we get to adulthood i've seen a lot of people through mental health practice that i'm like this seems more like a sensory issue uh especially you know people presenting with weird behaviors and that kind of thing um, weird sensitivities to noise, weird sensitivities to like, uh, I'd say like massive visual inputs, things like crowds and that kind of stuff where, yeah, okay. Once it gets to adulthood quite often, they're like, oh yeah, no, he's got an anxiety disorder. I'm like, it doesn't really present like, it's like chicken or the egg. Yeah. Uh, yeah. do they have an anxiety disorder, which is being exacerbated by crowds and noise or do they have a sensory issue processing those situations that is then causing them anxiety uh-huh. so well, I'll- yeah i'm wondering and a lot of the things that we would do i think traditionally in mental health with from a sensory point of view um are more uh, probably more acutely modulating the situation as opposed to fixing the root cause in a lot of cases does this, yeah. Do you think the same, I guess, theories that you would use to uh, adjust sensory tolerances in kids fit with adults as well, or is it a different kettle of fish? Absolutely. No, 100% same. Um, I think a lot of things like we do um, sensory diets is just compensatory, mm-hmm. right? We're just hoping to get them through the day without having issues. It's not actually going to change any problems in the brain. It's not going to actually get to the root cause. And that's same with adults. Yeah. The root cause, but it's not just the brain and the neurological work that we do with primitive reflexes and stimulating the sensory and both sides of the brain, but also the gut function. So the gut function is huge. like so, so huge. So that's another area that I always recommend to people to go to, to like getting into that whole food nutrition, maybe getting testing for certain vitamins and minerals and things that are off, but that can affect the function of the brain as well. Mm-hmm. So it's this is interconnectedness. And if you can hit both the brain and the gut together, you should be able to fix any problem. Yeah. Cause I think from my personal experience, so, uh, so when I was younger, I was, 
very much the social butterfly. Uh, would go to pretty much any music festival, concerts, loud noises, big crowds, didn't phase me. And now that I'm an old man, um, I just, I couldn't even, I, I think back to some of the big festivals that I went to and I'm like, I couldn't even imagine standing in that crowd now. I get a little concert now and by the end of it, I'm like, yeah, I'm done. Like I'm going home. Um, I'm too old for this. And yeah. I, and I think it was because there was, again, like lack of exposure. Like when I was younger, I used to do it all the time and enjoyed it, had a great time, wouldn't change it. Uh, and then quite a long time, I guess, between, uh, concerts, festivals, exposures to those kinds of environments and then getting back into it, I'm like, Oh yeah, no. And then part of me was like, well, is this just part and parcel of getting older? Or if I really, really wanted to, could I expose myself to that same environment and would it change? Like, would I get used to it again? Uh Uh-huh. Well, I don't, you know, you probably could get used to it again, but there are changes that occur, you know, like the vestibular system, when we are young, you can go on roller coasters and like yeah, I never spin did like crazy, but now your stomach, yeah, like it's no, no good. Well, the, like the fluid in the inner ear canal start to harden as you get older. Mm-hmm. So that's why doing dizzy things and like being on your head, it does bother it over time. Um, but I think if you did a lot of handstands, you know, you probably could get a little bit more used to it, but not at the same level as when you're a child, just because you are aging and, things are changing a little bit and maybe your visual perceptual abilities might be changing too because we're aging. So it could be a little bit that you could probably, if you worked at it, you probably could help yourself, but you know, there's certain limitations with just aging. (laughs) So it's the old, the old nature versus nurture debate. You're still working within your uh, natural capacity. It's just that maybe diminished a bit, but you can, I guess, (laughs) train yourself to get the most out of whatever that wherever that capacity is at the time yeah yeah (laughs) yeah i I must have always had an old man inner ear then because i could never do roller coasters they just weren't my jam oh really (laughs) no not my thing oh they're fun oh no i went on one i got tricked by into going on one once and i've never been on one since I got told I got told it was a haunted house, one of those like real slow, chill things. I'm like, yep, sweet, I can do that. And then it went dark and this thing just took off and I went, no. Nah. I was not having a, a trauma from it, I think. Yeah, I think you have to work on that trauma. That's probably it. Yeah, I'm not ex- more than happy not to expose myself to that again in the, in the interest of learning how to go on roller coasters. No. Nah. So I think, you know, I just want to put out that OTs have such amazing skills. Yeah. That I think Let's talk about it. Yeah. I think we have so much more potential to impact, especially now with social media. You know, you see Ironically. all these. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> I know. It's like, just it's spend 20 minutes talking about how evil <laughs> it is and how it's changed everything for the worst. Do but it in the forest. here's it's the positive. <laughs> Uh, but you know, there's so many individuals like moms, let's say that are, 
bit, know a little bit about sensory and they're like killing it on social media, telling other parents, whereas we are the experts. Like, why aren't we the ones talking about these things? Like we need to um, get past that whole licensure thing that (laughs) everyone gets scared. Like they can't talk to certain people, can't give their advice because they're going to get their license in trouble or something. But we just have so much education that we're not, you know, not educating them. Is that a, is that a, I don't know, whoever does your licensing over there, uh, is that a a systemic issue or is that a a therapist just being too tentative issue? Well, I know a lot of therapists who like kind of want to go into wellness or like lifestyle coaching, but because say Medicare, you're not allowed to, you know, even work with a client unless they are using their insurance. So then therapists get scared that maybe, oh, if I do personal training with this person who's Medicare, I'll get in trouble because I'm supposed to be billing it type of thing where I just think, I don't know, that's kind of silly. So it's a, I mean, it is a lot, but. Systemic issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'd be interesting to see if it, how that type of thing works in other countries, whether they have the same issues. So I don't think we would have the same issues. Okay. And I don't know. I mean, I'm fine with it. I guess it's personal. If you feel, I don't know. I don't think they would come after you or anything, but if, I mean, the whole lifestyle factor stuff that we are very good at figuring out, analyzing people's life and their habits and their behaviors is so important now with chronic conditions being like the number one illness, not only in kids, but in adults too, with all diabetes and all these different things that sometimes um, PRN at a hospital and just everybody there has chronic conditions that they're dying from all the cancers, all the diabetes. And there's so many factors that OTs could really create change with. Mm. Like I wish that paradigm shift would start to happen too. That'd be my goal. That's your goal. How are we going to do it? Yeah. How? Yeah. Okay. So you know how corporate corporate um, companies will have PTs sometimes come in to do prevention like, okay, they hurt their elbow, so they'll go see the PT for preventative purposes so that it doesn't get worse so the person can still work. This is in more like industrial type of areas. Well, what about if corporations, if OTs went into corporations in the same similar model for prevention and did educational services and helped people with nutrition and their lifestyle, but they could build under insurance, we're still with insurance, right? So that would help the corporation. That would help the corporations have their clients work better because they're healthier. They're sleeping better now. They're eating better. They're doing all these amazing things and their diabetes is getting better. I just think because we have that unique access of seeing clients on a regular basis versus doctors. We also have that ability to look at, ask them about every single aspect, stress and, you know, what they're doing at work and what they're doing at home and kind of looking at the full picture. Mm. Yeah. I had a very similar idea many moons ago and I was going to look into it, but I never did. But I'm sure I'd be interested to see if anyone listening has like worked in that kind of space because I know corporate wellness is a, oh, a couple of years ago anyway, it was a, like a, a an emerging area. And I don't think it was specifically for OTs, but I just felt that OTs were really well placed to be able to to do that kind of thing. And I think um, my original thought was around, I guess, the mental health side of it. So pitching it 
to corporations essentially based on the savings that you could make them yeah. mental health sick days and productivity and that kind of thing yeah. by exactly. running obviously my in my head it was mental health type stuff so you know resilience courses and stress management and anxiety management and all that kind of stuff um for their their staff uh i think it's slightly i do think one of the big issues is how your health system works with the insurance model um uh-huh. Because we don't we don't have that model here, so like we have public health. Um, there is ins- there is private health insurance, but it's you know, it's probably more readily available. Uh, but we also have you know, the public health system as a, a backup, so everyone's covered either way. Um, oh, okay, and private there's certain things i don't know if corporate wellness would be one of them but there's certain things that can be billed by a practitioner through the public health system as as opposed to having to get uh like pre-approval from an insurance company before you can do things which yeah from a practitioner's point of view probably just makes it a little bit more accessible yeah and if they save money they save money and i agree like not just mental health but you think about these people that are sick you know, they come in and they're not being productive or they're probably stressed if they have some type of, you know, if they have cancer, oh my God, they're definitely stressed. And so they're not going to be giving their, their best at work either. Um, so yeah, I think that could be a huge place. OTs can make a big difference. Be interesting to see, I saw on the news the other day, I think it was, where was it? Somewhere in Scandinavia, I can't remember where it was, Iceland or somewhere like that, have just introduced a four-day work week. Oh, nice. But, yeah, I've seen a lot about that on terms of being a more productive work model mm-hmm. in that yeah. you know, there's more. And I don't even know, I haven't even looked into it to see whether, the like, say, the three days off are actually even in a row. Um, I'm not sure, but I like I, I've seen models where people work longer days, but they only work four, and that worked better because they have, you know, more time with family and more time to, I guess, develop a life outside of work, and I think that's one of the things that is kind of limiting a lot of people nowadays is they work so hard or they work so long not necessarily hard depending on who you are but they work so long and their time outside of work is just spent recovering from work and they don't have i see so many people nowadays that don't have hobbies they don't have anything really outside of work and then wonder why you know they get depressed they get sick they get this they get that um and then Start developing things like anxiety or, which like I said before, I've seen quite a lot of anxiety cases, which to me are more sensory cases. Yeah. Well, we're passing that on to our kids, right? Like how many more kids have anxiety, depression? Um, We're passing on the busyness, like Mm. from this activity to the next activity to, like I said, like all those things. So it's not helping. Well, we've, <laughs> it's not helping anybody. Yeah, and we've we've moved on to being 
I think, well, I can't remember what the stats were, but it's super, super common that both parents are working, kids are you know, spending more time or more years in things like daycare and kindergarten, that kind of stuff, because both parents are working. Um, yeah. So you, know, you have both parents that are only really seeing their kids a little bit in the afternoon, a little bit in the morning, and then two days a week. And even then, sometimes if they got other things on, it might not even be a full two days a week. Whereas, yeah. you know, 50 years ago or 60 years ago, whenever it was, you would almost always have one parent at home with the kids. Mm-hmm. Whereas, yeah, so that's been a huge shift too, you're right, which decreases a lot of stuff. Just that, I mean, when you're in daycare, you look at that, like little infants in daycare, um, when I've observed there, they might have two babies out at a time on the carpet, but the rest of them are laying on their backs in a crib or in a bouncy chair or like contained, mm. right? So they're not getting all that movement they need either. So it's kind of this horrible cycle, <laughs> you know, that people are trapped in this work world where they're anxious and anxiety, but then their kids are, I don't know. It's yeah, it's not great. Cause I think in terms <laughs> of what you were saying about uh, working with the parents to, I guess, sort out some of the parents' issues because that's going to get passed on to the kids. I see the same thing with regards to that is uh, even from, again, from my mental health perspective, I see a lot of parents now that uh, don't have resilience, they don't have the coping mechanisms to cope with what they're doing day-to-day anyway. So their natural default is to, when they're out of work, they want to de-stress, they jump on their phone. They do something like that that's really mundane and isolative as opposed to being able to readily cope and manage with you know, the day-to-day work stresses and that kind of thing so that they can spend that time with their kids, doing things, going outside, you know. Yeah. I- well, that goes along with parents need to be regulated yeah. to enable co-regulation, right? So if their child is having a behavior after school and melting down or melting down at the store and the parent's stressed out and anxious and over everything, like they're going to yell and freak out. And that's not going to help that child's nervous system understand how to regulate either for typical kids, let alone kids that have issues anyway. So yeah, it, it is this big whole factor it's not just the kid but it's how the parents relate to the child Mm. and interact with them too that can help so i think that's something that should real i mean if possible anyway um be taken into account is like you said earlier like you might have to help parents in order to help kids and i i see that very much within OT scope as well. I know a lot of people. Uh, I've heard. I've heard the argument that oh, you know, I work with the kids. I don't work with the parents. I'm like, well, yeah, but you're an OT. You work with the person, the 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 environment, and the occupation. And that parent is part of that kid's occupation. Uh, part of that kid's environment. Yeah. So you sure. can adjust the environment to increase occupational engagement. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. No one talks to me about that. As a parent of a child with special needs, no therapist ever yeah. asked me about my life. Yeah. So that's actually part of our program. We do a weekly like Zoom call with all participants where we go over those factors too, like lifestyle. Like let's, this isn't just about your child. This is about you 
and your whole family and how everybody needs to look at what's going on yeah. to make this the happiest, you know, and make it hot. You know, it's good for everybody. You want to be happier, less stressed. Doesn't everybody want to be that way? And that's like I've seen just observing parents and kids where you, you know, might, if you look at the kid on its own, you might go, oh, this kid's got all kinds of behavior issues. And then you see him with the parent, you're like, oh, that's where that comes from. That's, oh, totally. <laughs> now <laughs> I understand. And it might not, like, I don't, I don't want to scare people into thinking that they've got to try and fix the whole world. It might not necessarily be that you yourself have to work with the parent, but you can link them in with other services that can. Right. Yeah. Like if you identify that, okay, like mom's super anxious and she always looks destroyed when she comes and brings the kid in, like maybe she's not mm-hmm. sleeping, something's going on. You don't have to go in and help mom, but you might be able to go, listen, I can see that you're burned out by this. Here's a, another OT or like a, like an, an OT that works with adults kind of thing that might yeah. be able to help you sort you out. And that in turn is going to help, you know, little Johnny with his issues as well. Yeah. Yeah. And just explain it from that scientific standpoint of co-regulation mm. and, you know, not just saying, well, you look anxious. So are they, <laughs> but yeah. The old transference. <laughs> but yeah, I think that will be, that would be really helpful. I don't think adults think like that, especially because at least recently, you know, autism was thought to be genetic or a lot of disorders, but now we know they're not. Um, so yeah, I think that'll help. That would help more. Awesome. I tend to bring everything back to mental health because that's, what I know and so far I haven't found anything that I can't so (laughs) it seems to work thank you so much it's been a lot of fun you're welcome and extremely informative I've learned a lot which is awesome good it's fun talking